Good morning. You guys steamy enough? A little warm. But uh, we're so glad that you came out this morning to worship the Lord together. And do keep our uh, uh, Kosovo mission team in prayer. Um, not sure how I would fear if I didn't have my clothes with me uh, there. But who knows? Maybe they'll come back with a new wardrobe, right? So, but we're glad that you're here. We are continuing our study in the book of Colossians. If you uh, are just now joining us, you can go back uh, to our website where you can uh, listen to the previous messages. And really, each one kind of builds on the previous. And so, if you're just kind of joining us today, you might want to go back and listen from the beginning, get caught up. We still have another uh, couple of weeks to go. Uh, this is kind of. Uh, an interesting spot where we are today because this morning's message kind of marks the end of the theological or doctrinal portion of the text or the letter of the book of Colossians. Um, Paul spent uh, the first couple of chapters here uh, outlining basically some theological truths, some doctrines that we need to take to heart. But starting in chapter 3, we're going to start moving into the practical implications of the things that he has taught. And really, in the verses that we're going to cover today, it's almost a transition or pivotal piece because he has all of this doctrine that he leads up to. And now we're going to be looking at some warnings. So he kind of gives us the theological truths, the doctrine. Now there are some warnings, and then he'll move in next week starting uh, into practical application. Christ is not enough. Church, hear me. Christ is not enough. You need something more. You need something else to be made complete. That's what the false teachers in Colossae were telling the believers there, that Christ wasn't enough, that they needed something else. And I've got to tell you that things really haven't changed in 2,000 years because many of us are being told the same thing. Christ is not enough. That we need something more. And this something more that these false teachers were promising was actually a mixture of Christianity with a bunch of isms. You had Gnosticism and paganism and asceticism and mysticism and Judaism and legalism. The Apostle Paul wrote this particular letter to this fledgling church to warn them about this false teaching and to fortify them against it. And he does so by demonstrating the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Last week in chapter 2 here, verses 6 through 15, we, we learned that just as we received Christ, we are also to walk in Him. We learned that in Christ, all the fullness of deity 
dwells in bodily form. And we have been made complete in Him. Verse 8 is an important verse in this chapter. And really, verse 8 and 9 probably is the high point of Paul's theological treatise here. But in verse 8, we're given a command where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And before I go any further, I think it's important for us to understand, Paul is writing to Christians. And what he is saying here is that it is possible for you to be a blood-bought disciple of Jesus and still be deceived by various teachings. Now, if, if you don't get anything else, this ought to tell you, you need to be vigilant. You need to be students of the Word. We need to be prayerful and alert in understanding that we have an enemy who is hell-bent on our destruction. Scripture says the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And if he can't keep you from coming to Christ, he will render you ineffective in your service to Christ. And he will attempt to rob you of your joy. And so much more. In verses 16 through 23, Paul goes into greater detail of what it means to be kidnapped by false teaching. Remember, we talked about that last week what it meant to be held captive. He, he goes into greater detail here, and he makes, in my opinion, a blistering assault against three of these isms. Against legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And his message to the church there in Colossae is one that we need to hear today. And in some ways, you might be able to sum up that message is that we are to never surrender our freedom in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word to us. Lord, I confess to you my weakness as I look at this text, as I get ready to, to preach it. Lord, there's so much in here and there's so many points of application and your sheep that are gathered here this morning, they come from, from all different backgrounds, different denominational flavors and distinctives. And, and Lord, uh, we, we confess that, that we are easily deceived. And I pray this morning that you would open up our eyes, that you would make us attentive that we would be responsive to your word. So Lord, speak through me and anything that I say that is of myself, of my own flesh, Lord, I pray that you would just strike it from our memory so that only the truth of your word remains. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. They say that there is nothing new under the sun. And that is certainly true when it comes to false teaching. 
today, as in Paul's day, there is no shortage of teaching that really lays at the foot of the church this idea that Christ is not enough. You know, whether it is going to the bookstore and seeing, you know, the, you know, the five secrets to the Christian life or the seven keys to unlocking something that's supposed to make your life so much more meaningful and fruitful. The argument often goes like this. You may be a Christian. You may have the Holy Spirit in your life, but you don't have all of the Holy Spirit. You need something more. You need something in addition to what Christ has done for you to take you to the next level of spirituality. For some, it is special knowledge that unlocks all that God has for you. For some, it is a special manifestation of the Spirit that allows you to experience true fullness in Christ. And for many, it comes from following rules and regulations or through the harsh treatment of the body. And that's what Paul's going to be getting at here in our text this morning. And he gives us two specific commands that that really help us understand what he's getting at. And then he poses a question that, in my opinion, um, carries the force of a command. And the first command is in response to legalism. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, in light of everything that he has said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, you have to remember that these false teachers in Colossae did not believe that Christ was enough. Therefore, they sought to impose their ideas and thoughts on what would make them complete upon the rest of the believers there in the church. And this included some pagan thoughts and concepts, but, in, but, but really included a lot of Old Testament rules and regulations. What they were really saying to them was is that if you really want to experience true fullness, you need to observe these rules and these regulations and these rituals. You can't be complete unless you do that. So what was Paul's response? Don't do it. Look, don't let anyone act as your judge in regards to what you eat and drink or in regards to special seasons or services or Sabbaths. But not only are you not to allow other people to, to judge you, you're not to judge others. And by the way, I, I think it might be helpful here to say when, when Paul says, don't let others you know, pass judgment on you. He's not saying, you know, confront them and say, hey, 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 do not pass judgment on me. 
He's not talking about a confrontation like that. He's talking about being so rooted in the truth of God's word that when we are confronted by that, when people judge us by these means or methods, that we stand tall, we stand strong, we do not succumb to that. Trying to be put in our place, so to speak, we stand firm in Christ. Paul kind of alludes to this in Romans chapter 14, verses 2 through 5. This is what he says, listen. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. But another man who is weak in faith eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. One man considers one day more sacred than another, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So Paul made it abundantly clear we're not to judge one another in regard to these Old Testament dietary laws. Now, we may not be tempted today to observe those laws or the ceremonial laws or the different rites and rituals of Judaism, but we too can think that we are made complete by observing some external ritual or right or outward aspect of the Christian life. And I mentioned several of these last week, so I'm not going to repeat myself there. If you weren't here, I encourage you, go back, listen to that message. The point here is that true spirituality is not about not doing certain things. So often we, we, we define our Christianity by what we don't do. I don't, I, you know, I've never murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't swear. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't. And we define our Christianity by the things that we don't do. But neither is it about the opposite of that, doing certain things. It's not about not doing, but it's also not about doing. Again, I shared some of these with you last week, but we can think that if I read my Bible and I pray daily, if I attend church services, if I attend life group, if I'm in a D group, if I sing in the choir, if I give, if I serve, if I do, 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 then I will be accepted. Then I will be made complete. But we don't become more spiritual by observing a set of rules. We don't go down the checklist and then at the end of it go, yep, I hit all the boxes. I'm good. I'm complete. I mean, you have to understand that the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, the whole thing, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremonial and dietary laws that were given were given to point the people to a greater reality, namely Christ. They were pictures of what was to come. And that is why Paul says that these are a shadow. The reality 
is Christ. It, it amazes me to see how many Christians today are fascinated and gravitate towards observing Jewish festivals and feasts, whether it be the Passover, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. And I think there's a part of them that thinks that if, if in observing these things, I then get closer to God. I am some, I have a deeper understanding of, of things, and, and I am more spiritual as a result. But Paul says all these things that you see there in verse 16 were designed to point the Jews to Jesus. They were merely a shadow of things to come. Now, most of you know that I love spending time with my wife. We have this thing called Mondays with my man. And we love to spend time together. We, we, we always have. And one of the things we love doing is hiking together. And so uh, on a good uh, Monday, you know, where, where, the, where it's nice and sunny, you will find us hiking just about anywhere here in Ohio. And... Uh, by the way, I think Eric said, I, I know more about the state of Ohio than he does, and he's lived here his whole life. It's because we love going different places and doing that. But, it, but on a good sunny day, we might be out hiking together. And as we're hiking, one of the things I like to do is I like to reach down and hold my wife's hand. Then it gets a little hot, and then I let go. But as we're walking... With the sun beating down, as long as you're not in too much shade, you know what you'll notice? You'll notice a couple of shadows being cast on the ground. And if I'm feeling particularly affectionate or frisky on that particular day, I am not going to dive onto the ground and hug her shadow. Why? Because the shadow is not the real thing. It just points to the real thing. If I want to hug my wife, I'm going to hug my wife. I'm going to reach for her, not the shadow. And in the same way, the Old Testament feasts and festivals were mere shadows of the reality of what was to come, namely Christ. And now that Christ has come, we no longer need the shadows. We no longer need to look to the shadows. And why would we ever want to go back to shadows now that Christ has come? And we have the real thing. Never surrender your freedom to Christ, to anyone, especially to those who teach legalism. We must beware of legalism, but we must also be aware of mysticism and asceticism. And we can see this in Paul's second command in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you. The first one, let no one pass judgment on you. The second one, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
Now, in these two verses, Paul is primarily dealing with the problem of mysticism. And mysticism is a philosophy that emphasizes subjective experiences and ecstasy. There's a lot of emotion often involved. And they emphasize these experiences over objective truth and reason. John MacArthur said this about mysticism. He says, mysticism may be defined as the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. It is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and natural senses. It looks for truth internally, weighing feelings and intuition and other internal sensations more heavenly than objective, observable, external data. Mysticism ultimately derives its authority from a self-actualized, self-authenticated light rising from within. This irrational and anti-intellectual approach is the antithesis of Christian theology. That's quite a statement. And apparently there was at least one person in Colossae, if not more, who claimed spiritual superiority over everyone else on the basis of the experiences that he had or claimed to have, whether it was with angels or with visions that he supposedly received from God. And the Christians there were made to feel inferior. They were made to feel incomplete and it divided the church into the haves and the have-nots. Those that had fullness and those who don't, who need it. The word translated disqualify is an athletic, athletic term that literally means to give judgment, to rule against, or to declare unfit. The idea here is, is that there is somebody who, in a sense, acts as an umpire and who makes the call and disqualifies others who are running the race. They are disqualified from winning the prize. Now, when Paul says, don't let anybody rob you of the prize, He's not talking about don't let anyone rob you of your salvation because that won't happen. That can't happen. If you are in Christ, you are secure in him. He will never let you go. You can try, but God will chasten you. God will track you down. He'll make you miserable until you bend your knee in repentance and return to him. But we don't have to worry about losing our salvation. What he is saying here is don't let anyone rob you of your joy and your stability in Christ. Don't let anyone cheat you of your assurance and fullness in Christ. And again, never surrender your freedom in Christ. You are complete in Him. I want us to look at how Paul describes this individual or individuals. 
Notice it says that they insist on asceticism. The word for asceticism is very interesting. It, it, it really means humility, but in the context, it really means a false humility. There is a false humility and self-abasement that is taking place, and they are insisting that other people do what they do. More on that in just a minute. But they also insist on the worship of angels. This phrase, worship of angels, is not really uh, easy to understand, but one way to look at this is that angels are powerful beings, and they are often seen as intermediaries between God and man. And therefore, these false teachers may very well have been saying, listen, remember, it says in false, false humility. It's as if these people were saying, you know, I'm such a sinner. There's no way that I can come before God. I just can't. I am so far from the person that God has created me to, to be. So I approach God through these intermediaries, through the angels. And I can really relate to this. I, I grew up Catholic. Many of you know that. And the church is filled with statues of the saints and of angels and of Mary. And I was taught from a very young age growing up is that if I need God to do something for me, it's always best to go through his mom. <laughs> always always pray to Mary and ask Mary to ask Jesus to do for me what I would like Jesus to do for me. And if, and if that's too hard, then you can go to one of the saints because they're kind of a little lower in the pecking order, not quite as holy as, as Mary was, you know. And then you could also turn to the angels. And it, it was because God was so untouchable. I mean, my vision, my understanding of God was he was not a loving character. He looked more like Zeus to me with a lightning bolt in his hand, ready to smite me the first time I messed up. And what may be happening here is exactly that, that, that they were saying in their false humility, not understanding the truths of Scripture, that we need to go to intermediaries before God. And being that the angels were such powerful beings, they were venerated and worshipped. But let me tell you, if that's your view this morning... That view is a repudiation of the person and work of Christ. Scripture tells us that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. When he stretched out his arms on the cross and he died, the scripture says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that we now have access to the holy of holies. We now have direct access to God through the blood of Christ. We don't need intermediaries. And Paul is warning the Colossians of this here. And it's very interesting to note, did a little bit of research on this, but in AD 366, the synod of Laodicea, which was not very far from Colossae, 
said this, it is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God to go away to invoke angels. So they were very much aware of this issue and problem in the Lycus Valley. And what's interesting is, is that Christians were actually tempted to leave the church, to go off and have their own religion and worship the angels. And for centuries after that, despite the proclamation that was made, the archangel Michael was worshipped for several more centuries in this area. Now, some commentators think that the worship of angels might not be referring to the worship of angels, meaning the worshiping of angels, but rather how angels worship, the worship of angels. In other words, that there is a higher plane of worship and communion with God that we must attain to. We must learn to worship like the angels do. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I can see how it could be. See, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about one of the spiritual gifts, the gift of tongues. And he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels... So a lot of people today talk about these different kinds of tongues, which is an interpretation of that, that there's a, a tongue of men and then there's the tongue of, of angels. And, and if you hold to that particular view, the idea here then seems to be that, oh, and, and by the way, I will say even today in some circles, if you don't speak in tongues, you aren't even saved because that's a sign that you belong to Christ. But if you don't speak in the tongues of angels, the thinking goes, you have not yet arrived. You are not yet truly worshiping the way that God wants to be worshiped. We need to worship as the angels do. So you are incomplete. Now, regardless whichever view you subscribe to, they're both wrong-headed. They're both in error. Notice Scripture goes on to say that they go on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensual mind. Now, that's a mouthful. People like this want everyone to know how spiritual they are. Because they, they think the, an, an exercise of a spiritual gift is proof that you're spiritual. Wrong. The Corinthian church had all the gifts in operation, and they were the most carnal group of Christians you were going to meet in the New Testament. You want to know what it means to be truly spiritual? Talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not, do you prophesy? Do you have tongue? Do you love? Is there peace? Is there joy? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you have the character of Christ? But they want everybody to know how in tune with God they are, so they go on and on about visions that they supposedly receive, which reveals spiritual pride with a thin veneer of false humility. 
The New American Standard tra translates this it, going on in detail as they take their stand on visions. I think the King James may also say that. So what the meaning there is, is that rather than taking their authority from Scripture, they're taking their authority from their experiences, and that's where they make their stand. I've had this experience. I have had this vision. It is authoritative. I had a good friend who I spent considerable amount of time with working through the Scriptures trying to show them that a particular belief that she held to was unscriptural. Her response to me, despite pointing out several passages of Scripture that made it abundantly clear, was, I don't care what you say, and I don't care what Scripture says. I know this is true because I had this experience. Folks, that's dangerous. The English Standard Version, uh, the Study Bible, has this note in their Study Bible about this going on into detail. And I want you to hear this. The verb translated going on in detail is rare in Greek literature and difficult to interpret. The use of this word on a series of inscriptions found near Ephesus, however, has clarified the meaning here. It denoted the higher stage of mystery cult initiation that involved entering the innermost sanctuary of a pagan temple. The term suggests that the leader of the Colossian faction may be basing part of his teaching on spiritual experiences he gained in a pagan ritual initiation, thus showing the syncretistic nature of his false teaching. These false teachers may have, in fact, had visions but they were not from God. God does not give people visions to puff them up or so that they can use it to manipulate other people to do what they want them to do. A God-given vision will never contradict His Word and it will never add anything to His Word. Sadly, and I wondered if I should go there, but I'm going there. Sadly, a lot of Christians in our country have been thrown for a tailspin since the November election. They believe the prophecies and the visions of Trump winning a second consecutive term. You, you have followed it. I'm sure you have followed it. I don't know if you know this, though, but it rocked the charismatic Pentecostal community. It rocked them because there was no getting around it. Everything that they said, well, I shouldn't say there was no way of getting around it. There were some that attempted to get around it. Well, Trump won, but it was stolen from him. So we were right. 
Wow. Folks, we need to be better grounded in God's Word. We need to be more discerning. I want you to consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And not Jeremiah Johnson, by the way. Just want to be clear. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet. And, and, and I am only scratching the surface here. In chapter 14, he says, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Fast forward to chapter 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth. For what does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and their reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Folks, if you don't think that there are false prophets today, you are deceived the church is full of them. And you can watch them on TV every day. The words that the Lord spoke to the prophet Jeremiah apply to us today. He goes on to say, Paul does, that these people do not hold fast to the head. Meaning that by holding on to their subjective experiences, they've lost connection to Christ. They've lost connection to the head. Folks, we have to remain connected to the head if we're to grow in Him. As the head of the body, Jesus not only provides leadership for the church, but He provides everything we need to live and to grow and mature in Him. Now in verses 20 to 23, Paul turns his attention to the false philosophy of asceticism. And he asks a question that, in my mind, it really has the force of a command, and that is simply this. Let no one enslave you. Let no one enslave you. And here's the question. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, talked about that last week, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And here's just a few of them. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed in an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now Paul's question is somewhat rhetorical because the answer should be obvious. We ought not submit to these kinds of regulations because they don't profit us in any way, shape, or form. And what is more, and what is most scary about this, it is in accordance with the doctrine of demons. Oh, wow. Where do you get that from? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy, and this is what he says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who know and believe the truth. You have to ask yourself, how in the world is it that food created by God and, and, and to be enjoyed and, and marriage that God ordained and instituted became something to be avoided? It all goes back to Gnosticism. It all goes back to the wrong-headed belief that the material world or the physical world is evil and the spiritual realm is good. And since the body is physical, the whole goal of life is to get out of it. It's to get out of it to free the spirit, to free the true self from the body. And one of the ways in which they did that was by harsh treatment of the body, denial of things that, that were meant to be enjoyed. And folks, I hope you caught all of that because that's the philosophy that is behind all the gender hysteria today. All the transgender stuff today. This body is just a shell. My true self has to be liberated and freed and whatever that true self may be. Again, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Abstaining from food and drink and the happiness and the pleasures of marriage were just a few of the ways that they attempted to become spiritual and holy. You know, prior to the Reformation, you know who the most holy people were? 
or considered to be? It's the priests, the monks, the nuns. And why were they considered to be so holy? It's because they followed the rules. They followed the rules and the regulations of the, of the Catholic Church, of their monastery or their abbey. Many men and women took vows of celibacy, lived in isolation, did hard manual labor, shaved their heads, wore uncomfortable clothing, followed strict diets and mandatory fasts, and prayed for hours on their knees and not on a nice padded kneeler. They followed man-made rules, but man-made rules never generate holiness, never produce Christ-likeness. I like what Legionnaire Ministries, uh, their Table Talk magazine uh, said, I read this this past week, by making traditions the mark of holiness, we can fool ourselves into thinking we have evidence of saving faith in our lives when all we have is external conformity to non-divinely inspired regulations. Man-made religion, human precepts and teachings indeed have an appearance of wisdom and of true religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they have no power to curb the sinful nature or to make us more like Christ. Folks, if you are in Christ, you are complete in Him. You are lacking nothing. God is not holding back from you. I urge you, live out of your identity in Christ. Never surrender your freedom in Christ to anyone, not to legalism, not to mysticism, not to asceticism. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you and let no one enslave you. Contrary to what these false teachers taught church, Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness too, helping me get through this message. Lord, just like Paul had a heart for these Colossian believers that they wouldn't throw away their confidence in you that they would just lean into you even more. Lord, that is my prayer for this church, for this body whom I love. Lord, I desire for them to understand who they are in you and to live out of that reality, out of that truth. And that, Father, that they would enjoy you now and forever. 
And Lord, I pray that as we seek to live for you, as we seek to, to put your kingdom first, that, Father, that there would be many more lovers of Jesus in your kingdom as a result of our love for you and our obedience to you. Lord, protect us from the evil one. Protect us from these deceptive, lying philosophies that surround us. Ground us in your word and in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.